Welcome to Mosaic, living biblically in an unbiblical world. God is putting together the tiles of our lives so that we can glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Join me, Dr. James Brown, member of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, as we discover how to orient our lives on God's Word and live for Him. In today's modern American church landscape, you're almost told that if you're not involved in a small group, you're missing out on what it means to be a follower of Christ. But what do small groups and family worship have to do with one another? Picture this, you walk into a church for the first time and you see all these advertisements for small groups. You're told the same thing over and over again. Small groups are where community happens, where you become a fully devoted follower of Christ. So studies tell us that there's at least five different types of small groups. The first type of small group is called an open group, and this is the small group that are opening to adding new members as time goes by or between curriculums. It's very inviting, and they might have a chair open for the Holy Spirit to bring someone in. The second type of small group is called a closed group. These groups are not open to adding anyone else. Once the group is set, it's set for life. The members of the group might sign a non-disclosure agreement. They might call it a covenant or a confidentiality statement, but nonetheless, it's a closed group and no one else can enter. The third type of group is a missional group. These are the groups that go out to seek those that aren't part of the church and to bring them into the fold. And so it's very evangelistically minded, it's very service-oriented, but they're all about reaching the lost. The fourth is a discipleship-intensive group. And these are the small groups that are intensive and intentional in their accountability, in their knowledge, in their spiritual disciplines. If you go into those groups, you're going to get meaty, word-based studies, and you're going to be asked to do a lot of confessing. And then, of course, the fifth one is the free market group. I know that term free market may sound a little weird to use in church since it's an economic term, but what they mean by free market is it's open to any sort of demographic. And if there's a demographic out there, there's a small group for that demographic. These small groups might be focused around a recreational hobby or a stage of life or an occupation or residential location or a specific cultural or ethnic background. So those are the five types of small groups. But how do we get to the point where small groups are the lifeblood of the church? Well, let's just go over a quick history of it. Now, this history isn't about the early church movement. That has been talked about many, many times. Uh, This is about the modern small group movement. And I I really kind of want to focus on the past century or so of the modern movement of small groups. The term small group movement goes back to the 1920s and 1930s uh, in New York at a place called Calvary Episcopal Church. From there through the 1950s or 60s or so, it was an underground movement, and it was primarily meeting the needs of those who didn't want to be part of the established church. Maybe they were being shunned by the church or they were being hurt by the church, but they really didn't want anything to do with it. But it really wasn't taking off. But around that same time, two new groups emerged that would shape how small groups are felt even until today. The first one is Alcoholics Anonymous, where alcoholics found help and recovery and rehab through a small group format. And then the Navigator Ministry, where people were being discipled in a small group format. And this reinvented the idea of small groups. But instead of being a discipleship group, and then 60s through the 80s or so, small groups were really missional. They weren't focused on discipleship, but they were focused on evangelism, 
meeting the needs and preaching the gospel to people that would never walk into a church door. In the 80s and the 90s, there was a turn in the ideology of the small groups. The focus changed from evangelism to discipleship. For those that follow the modern church culture, these decades we know as the church growth movement. And the point of the small group was no longer about reaching the world for Christ, but it was really about keeping people from leaving the church. And in beginning in the early 2000s, the small group movement coalesce into something different. It, it changed into really mostly affinity groups that take on a cookie-cutter mentality. But as the role of the internet, video-based curriculum, the idea of bigger mega churches sending stuff out, the cookie-cutter mentality became more and more of a thing. Now, does any of this mean that small groups are bad? Well, I think small groups can be helpful and they can be supportive. But if we look at those five types of small groups, there's some dangers involved with each one of them. Each one of them can lead to some sort of sense of exclusivity or superiority or maybe an egalitarian perspective of the church. For instance, take a look at the open group. The open groups are the ones that will allow whoever to come in. If you do that, you could easily bring someone that trying to bring dissension in the church or really just wants to make it all about them because they're in a bad spot. And so you never get around to actually getting into the Word of God. If you look at the closed group, well, the closed group are the ones that might sign the non-disclosure agreement and they're not open to adding new members. You know, that non-disclosure group has always seemed a little bit problematic to me. I understand the sentiment behind the non-disclosure agreement because you don't want people sharing secrets. But God's already commanded us not to do that. He's told us we're not to gossip, and he's told us not to bear false witness. If you have someone in your group that isn't comfortable following the commands of God and needs to sign something else on top of that, then maybe that's someone you probably don't need to be in your small group. The other side of that is those kind of groups can become very cliquish and cultish. If you look at the missional groups, the ones that go out to reach the lost, that sounds great, and we should do those things. But one of the dangers of the missional group is becoming really frustrated with the established church and really sort of disenfranchised franchised with like the stuffiness or the stoicism of some of the worship services. And then you have those free market groups, the ones that are around recreational hobby stages of life, occupation, so forth and so on. Those can breed racism or prejudice or stereotypes. There's a danger of never discipling in those things. It's a danger of becoming a book club. There's also a danger of just doing life together. And the problem with the phrase of just doing life together, most people I know that are just trying to find a way to do life together, well, really what they're doing is they're just hanging out. They're not spending time in God's word. They're just talking about stuff or hanging out and having a good time. Or when someone says, I just want to do life with someone and be authentic, what they really mean is I don't want accountability and I want to be a jerk and I want to feel good about myself. But again, small groups aren't inherently bad. They can be supportive, but they cannot be your primary means of discipleship. They cannot be your primary means of learning the faith and learning how to follow Christ. I would be willing to bet as I went through all five, you were probably thinking, I'm in this type of group, or I want to be in that type of group. But what's missing in all of that? What's missing in all that are children and youth. See, we go through all of this stuff to try to find a small group that meets our needs, and we are more than happy to send our kids to a program. As long as we're getting fed and the kids have a video or kids have an arts and crafts to do, then it's great. You know, I know some people that are really passionate about kids that really want kids and youth to know who Christ is, to learn how to worship Him in spirit and in truth. I've rarely met someone that says they're called to children's ministry or they're called to youth ministry. So the question then becomes, is there a small group where family can participate together? Is there a small group where children, both young and adolescent, can get fed and learn the Word of God just as the adults are? Crazily enough, there is. 
It's called the family. The family is the original small group. And if you look at the family as a small group, there's three benefits that clearly are evident. The first one is that you teach the next generation faith. The second is that children learn complementarianism as well as learn how to submit to authority. The third one is you're simply strengthening family bonds and ties with one another. Let's go through some scriptures that talk about the family as a small group. The first one that comes to mind comes from Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 and through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When you are operating as a godly parent and you're teaching your kids faith, you are having dominion over your kids. A few books over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart. And you will teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I don't know if you noticed that, but God is saying you will teach the commands of the Lord diligently to your children and you'll talk of them when you sit down and when you're walking around and when you lie down at night and then when you wake up again. So God is saying it's your job as parents to teach your kids. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say it's your job to drop them off at whatever children's program or whatever youth program it is. In Psalms, Psalm chapter 78 verses 2 and through 4 said, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So there the psalmist is saying he's going to tell his children who God is and what God has done. Here's a great place to start if you don't know how to teach your kids. Psalm 78 tells us the blueprint. We tell our children what God has done and his mighty deeds of old. You begin in Genesis and you just work your way through. And then, of course, we have the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24 says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself is Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit everything to their husbands. So here we see that fathers are the small group leaders of the house. It's their job to teach. It's their job to instruct. It's their job to lead. And then just one chapter over, Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So dads, not only is it your job to lead spiritually, it's your job to teach the discipline and instruction of the Lord to your family. It's your job to disciple the family. In fact, Paul would say it like this in 1 Timothy when he's giving the qualifications of both an elder and a deacon. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, he said of the elder, he must manage his own house well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And just a few verses down in verse 12, he says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So we see dads are to manage their children well, their household well, and keep their kids submissive. What does it mean to manage your household well and keep your kids submissive? What it means is that you're teaching them the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, and you're telling them of the great and mighty deeds that God has done, and you're leading your family spiritually. So you're operating as a small group because you are a small group. In the family is where you learn how to live your faith out loud. 
It's where you learn to forgive one another. It's where you learn to pray for one another. It's where you learn to have difficult conversations about accountability. It's where you learn the disciplines of spiritual life. You learn all of those things in the microcosm of a family as you're opening up God's Word together and going through it. So what about those that are single? Well, that's a great question. What about those that are single? Singles are part of families too. If you are a follower of Christ means that you are part of the family of God. Your family is the church. And in Titus, the apostle Paul talks about mentorship, how widows are supposed to instruct the younger women and teach them how to love and serve, and how older men are to teach the younger men how to be godly young men. And so there's an avenue for mentorship. But at the same time, if the church is operating as the church, the singles will not be left out. I'm not talking about where they have events together where they can go do outings or recreational stuff together. That's not discipleship. That's hanging out. There's a passage in the Gospels where Jesus is in the synagogue and his mother and brothers show up. And one of the disciples say, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And what does Jesus say? He says, who are my mother and brothers? My mother and brothers are those that do the will of God. So just because you don't have a family right now or you're geographically separated from your family, if you are a member of the church, you have a family around you. Sometimes I wonder if the lazy theology and the shallow teaching that's happening in a lot of churches is because we've allowed the families to not be families. We've given over the role of dads to every other small group leader in a church. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little shocking, but if you start worshiping at home as a family and the husband starts taking the spiritual lead of the house, you might be surprised at the results. You might find that after a short time, you don't need those children's programs. You don't need those youth programs. You don't need those small group experiences because you're finding that in the house, you're glorifying God. You're growing closer to one another, closer to Jesus. You're living a Christ-centered life and you're looking forward to Sunday and you're looking for ways to minister. You might be surprised, but try it. So next week, we're going to talk about how do we find the right material to lead our family together. So join me. You're not going to want to miss out on that one. Soli Deo Gloria. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. I host another podcast called 10-Minute Catechism based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You can find both wherever you get your podcast.